Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you, as ever, by Vanishing Inc. Now, I'm often lucky enough to have people on this show who are amazing magicians, people's favourite magicians, popular magicians, but I don't think I've ever had anybody who's undeniably the greatest at what he does. Someone who's able to do things with a pack of cards that nobody else in the world can do. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the astonishing Richard Turner. Richard, how are you this afternoon? Damien, I'm doing very well, and thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're more than welcome. What's your origin story? How did you get into playing card artifice? You have 28 seconds. Um, Started as a little boy. We had a deck of cards. I was the oldest. I didn't like to lose, and so I played poker for M&Ms, and the reds were the most valuable, the browns were the least valuable, and I would play until I got all my sister's M&Ms. That's where it started. And that came from watching different Westerns, like Maverick in particular. He was a cool gambler, and I wanted to be a cool gambler. So you worked out cheating methods from watching Maverick? Mm -hmm. And then I had a, went to a school call for the visually impaired, and uh, my uh, uh, visually impaired resource teacher, he was an amateur magician and he would show us tricks. And uh, his volunteer, Mrs. Smith, had found an old book at a garage sale, which today would probably be worth a few thousand dollars, expert at the card table, and recorded excerpts on this giant seven inch reel to reel tape recorder. And she said, I could take it home and keep it as long as I wanted to learn from and practice with and I uh, kind of uh, went from there. I'd learn different moves and sit there and uh, at least they gave me the concepts of the moves. There was no photos because you can't put photos on a, a tape. Uh-huh. And so I just had to imagine that part. Oh my gosh. So your introduction was an audio book recording of Expert at the Card Table. That's amazing. Um, you will have no memory of this, but about 12, 15 years ago, I was your volunteer in the close-up room at the castle and it was a shocking experience for me because I knew technically most of what you were doing but I was sat inches away from the cards. I was burning your hands and I could see no moves at all and it was a really humbling experience and you must create that feeling for people, magicians and lay people, all day, every day. How does it feel still being able to do that after all of these years. I love amazing my audience. I want to leave them baffled beyond comprehension. And I love the feeling that I get from my audience because that feeds me as a performer. The more baffled they are or the more entertained they are or the more they laugh or the harder they laugh or the louder they go, what the heck? The the more it feeds a performer. And so I, I have to say, I've been performing next through my 50th year, rehearsing for my professional theatrical performance. And, uh, and I've done tens of thousands of shows over the half century. And, I, and even today, I still travel the world. I'm the keynote speaker for the biggest companies on the planet. I do, it's a combination of my card work woven within my keynote presentation, which is called Winning with the Hand You've Been Dealt, and DELT is an acronym. D stands for dreams, E excellent, A analysis, L loyalty, and D tenacity. And and I'm just excited today when I'm performing for them as I was 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, half a century ago. <laughs> Do you notice a difference with that energy when you're working for magicians or working for lay people? I love working for magicians. Most magicians don't like performing for magicians. I love performing for magicians because most of the stuff I do is outside of their realm of understanding or exposure. Mm -hmm. The gambling stuff, the gambling work is the most closely guarded, guarded information. And so um, the magicians, they get a big thrill and kick because people that do stuff, you know, they might do a double lift, a glide or a false shuffle or something. And uh, so they know the work necessary to make what I do happen. And, and so they can ap appreciate it. And the same with uh, my businessmen. My favorite are uh, businessmen because, uh, again, they will appreciate and understand the work that goes into it. Because when you turn that card face up and you just start dealing and it doesn't move, they understand, they see what they're seeing, but they can't comprehend on how it can be done so effortlessly. And that's the thing that you have to do is when you do your work, it has to look like you're doing nothing. I'm not a magician, but what I do is very magical. It has, I think, as strong a magical appeal as any any magician out there. It, uh, like I said, I'm telling what I'm doing in most cases, but like I said, it leaves them just baffled, which is fine. Why, why do you think you were drawn to the mechanic side of it rather than card magic after you'd won all of the good red M&Ms from your siblings? Did, were you not tempted to go in the magical route? I can do all that the slights a magician can do, but I don't do a single... I bet you can. <laughs> yes, but I, I don't do a single magic trick in my show. Um, and, and when I won the... You know, I've been nominated many times and won as many times as they allow you to win. You know, the magician, magician of the year at the Magic Castle Academy of Magical Arts, mm. and uh, at, the, at the first, one of the second or third time I was nominated, there was some black that came from one of the other nominees, going, "He shouldn't be, he shouldn't qualify because he's not doing any magic." And uh, <laughs> and then the year I won the first time, they added. Uh, for close-up magicians, card sharks, and card cheaters. So they actually added that in as a category. And 40 years ago, when I won the Golden Lion Award given by Siegfried and Roy in Las Vegas, uh, everyone kept coming up to Professor Vernon telling him, there's no way he can win. No way he can win with a deck of cards. And the Professor said they kept giving him, giving him all this flack that he can't do it. And, and uh, as you, you can see it on recording somewhere, he said, but uh, I did it. And he had faith that I was going to be I was going to be able to do it and that I was going to do it. Talking of the professor, when did you first hear about him? Because obviously there was no Internet then. You weren't looking at YouTube videos of him. When did you first hear about him and how did you start the journey to, to meet him? Well, of course, I heard I started playing with cards at seven. I was in a theater company, started in 1980, 1972. And uh, I, so, I, so I, I heard about him through the magicians in San Diego. One of them you know is Paul Harris. Right. There was another one, John Wagner, J.C. Wagner. Mm -hmm. um, another one, Eddie Houlihan, 
who got went to the, uh, the some school of magic when he got and he went on the GI Bill after World War II, and he lived in my hometown, and he performed at the bar one of the bars uh, up the street from my house, and uh, he would let me come in and have a glass of water and talk and show things, and he would tell me about performing at the castle, and how Professor Vernon would make some kind of comment about the ring that he wore, and so that's where I first started hearing about Vernon, and. Uh, then in 19, I was perf I was working on with Bob Yerkes, Y-E-R-K-E-S. He's done more stunts in movies and television shows than anybody in history. First movie was back in 47 with Elizabeth Taylor, and he's done thousands since. But he was uh, doing, at that time, Wonder Woman with uh, Linda Carter and Circus of the Stars. Mm -hmm. And I lived with him. And uh, so he would... Uh, teach me circus acts and I would help train the circus acts. But anyway, I received a call from John Wagner saying, hey, Professor Vernon would like to meet you. Now, this is June of 75. I just turned 21 and I thought, this is great. And so then the day before I was going to go to the castle, John calls me and says, oh, by the way, you have to have a coat to get into the magic castle. Uh -huh, sure. And I thought, a coat? I don't have a coat. I can't afford a coat and tie. So very quickly, I went to the Northridge shopping mall, went up to this clothing store, put my cards on a rack, started thumbing through coats, and the sales guy, sales guy comes up and says, I'll cut you high card for that coat. And I thought to myself, this is my lucky day. I said, okay. He goes, no, I'm just kidding. I said, tell you what. I took out two twos and a three. I said, you, uh, two twos and a queen. I said, if you tell me where the queen is, I'll pay double for the coat. If you get it wrong, you give me the coat for free. He said, really? I said, really? Well, he did it. He lost. Then I said, I bet the coat against a pair of pants, pants and coat against a shirt and tie. I walked out with a brand new suit, didn't pay a dime, went into the castle the next day. And in the library is where we met Professor Vernon. On that same day, I met who was my nemesis for a number of years, Tony Giorgio, best known as the guy in the Godfather movie who stabbed yeah, yeah. the guy's yeah. hand to the, to the bar. The yeah. And then Vern, and Vernon, Giorgio just yelled, won't get the money, won't get the money. But Vernon took a liking to me for whatever reason. And I became his student for 17 years. And my wife, the one you just met, uh, we threw him his 98th birthday party, uh, you know, two months before he passed away. Can you, can you paint a picture of what the castle was like then, hanging out with Jennings and Savon and that calibre of gentlemen? How often would you go? What was a typical evening like then? Would you just sit with the professor all, all night? What, what was it like? It was fantastic. Sitting with the professor was fantastic. We would sit at this little um, two settees, like uh, there are Victorian uh, mm -hmm. love seats with a table in between us. Yeah. And uh, we would sit there and show, move back and forth and back and forth. One of the funniest guys that hung out there. And of course, George Jennings, Jennings was there, and of course, he was really jealous of, of me because I got I was getting better than he was, and he didn't like that. And um, but, uh, and then George, of course, he <laughs> he caused all kinds of havoc, and uh, and there were other many many other great magicians in Carbon and Shimada, who just passed away, was one of my closest friends. He actually lived with me for a while uh, in the early '80s, and a wonderful man. Um, but anyway, we'd sit there and um, Heba Haba Al, who, had, uh, who was the first one that had the record for being buried alive on Ripley's, believe it or not, back in the 1930s. And he had this giant uh, eyebrow that went from one side of his head to the other. And he and Vernon would play hearts. 
and he Baba Al would come down and say, Vernon, we play hearts. And Vernon would, I'll be right up, I'll be right up, I'll be right up. And we're sitting there, and then two hours later, Hebahaba comes back down and he goes, Charge, uh, and I'll be right up, I'll be right up. Four hours, six hours later, Hebahaba comes down and he's been sitting up there for six hours waiting for a professor to come up, play hearts with him. He never, professor never showed up. And uh, one day, Hebahaba said, Second deal, it looks good, but what good is it? And he turned and walked away. But uh, that was just one of the funny, more funnier uh, experiences. And then um, one of the guys I really appreciate time with was a guy named Charlie Miller, very respected uh, student of Vernon's and a very one of the top card men in history. And um, he was a very interesting person to sit sit back with. And one time he invited me to his home. His home actually, the time he was living with Johnny Thompson, and uh, he would sit there and bring out deck after deck. Said, can you do it with this deck? Do it with that deck. And they'd say, can I watch you from here? Can I watch you from there? He'd well, circle the table, stand behind me, and he says something that'll stick stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, they call me eagle-eyed Charlie, kid. They call me eagle-eyed Charlie. Charlie sees everything, kid. I can't see it. I can't see it. And I thought, wow, what a nice thing to say, have said to you from Charlie Miller. Wow. Wow. What a compliment. Um. The professor took you under his wing, but what was a lesson really like with him? Was it him just getting cross with you and telling you you're doing it wrong, hitting your knuckles? What what, what was it like? Well, you tell he the professor was flat out honest all the time. Something was wrong, he would just say, "I don't care how fine that brief is. When you do like that, I know you're up to something." So he had no problem uh, uh, giving criticism. But what what he would do? as he would see how obsessed I was that I practice a 14 hour day would be a minimum hour a day mm. work or practice. The only time I wasn't practicing is when I was working out. I had two things, worked out, practice, worked out, practice. And 50 years later, same thing, except I do have a writing projects when I'm on the computer that takes down my uh, practice time because I can't type and shuffle. But uh, he would, uh, he saw, he would, He'd say, no, this guy, Dad Stevens, back in 1919, he did this side sweep uh, push-off, a second deal. And so he would describe it to me. And then the next time he'd see me, I'd do it. And he goes, he'd been working on it for 50 years and never got it. He goes, that's better than what Dad Stevens did. And so then he just saw how he would, how obsessed I was. And then he would say, now, Richard, you need to be relaxed, relaxed naturalness that's the most important thing you don't want the people to believe that you're doing anything so he would uh, say i feel my hands and so he would show me how it should be done and be and i'd feel his hands and the fingers that all fingers four fingers should be on the side of the deck don't sit there and grip the deck up because it makes people suspicious because the normal person doesn't hold the cards like that so i would practice it believing that he was able to do it that way and then um, uh, in the only, it was only years later that he admitted to me he couldn't do it. No one else could do it. He made it up. He just wanted to see what the obsessed kid would come up with. So many of the techniques and moves, seconds, bottoms, and shuffles and everything, the reason why they look different than all the other top, all the other top card guys is because uh, I did it in the way Professor pictured in his mind the way it should be done in a perfect manner. And uh, and so, uh, like I said, because I believed it could, he could do it, it could be possible, it was possible. 
But at that time, when he would show you that, or put his hands, put your hands on his hands, you didn't know he wasn't doing it, and you didn't know that it was impossible to do. So you just went ahead and yes, that is exactly right. I didn't know he couldn't do it. I just I assumed he could do it, and he would just put my he would show me his hands. Then he put my hands in the position, said that's the that's the way it should be done. If you're dealing the second or bottom, that's the grip that you should have. So. Uh, like I said, that's uh, what he would do. He would uh, uh, have me set me up and uh, say, that's the way to practice it. And I would spend, you know, a thousand hours and then come back to him and he would go, that's it. Uh, you've already mentioned the average of 14 hours practice seven days a week. For, for normal kind of mortals listening to this that can't find that amount of time, how can people practice effectively with the time that they've got in other words what makes for good practice well the thing it depends on what you do if you're talking about cards now liberace yeah. he cannot carry his piano his grand piano around with him because it's big a card deck of cards two sure. and a half inches by three and a half inches by three quarters of an inch thick we can take it anywhere i'm in the movie theater i have my little Shuffle pad, I sit on my lap, pull out my cards, they watch the movie, I practice. Go to conventions, they listen to their lectures, I practice. In the in the shopping, I'm, my, my wife's pulling the card, I, it looks like I'm pushing it, and with my left hand, I'm practicing one hand shifts or, or something. Uh, in the, as soon as I get in the car, pull out my practice card, put it on my lap, start practicing. There's lots of downtime that we're able to take and utilize if we are aware of it. And the thing is, we have wasted energy that we burn off the thing is to take that wasted energy that idle like a car idling is doing nothing and like there are people that will they'll sit there and tap their toe or tap their uh pin on the counter on the table mm -hmm. some nervous action that's energy that's being wasted take that nervous energy and funnel it into practicing something if it's a coin you sit there and just do that French drop over and over and over and over and over, thousand times, ten thousand times. Uh, like my my one of, one of my my second year, I've done over a hundred million times, and over five million times in front of a live audience. So, and I probably you know, I do an average of like three thousand six hundred second deals an hour, and uh, so you you just take that and utilize that time. Like I said, I would not be able to do this, spend the time with you if I wasn't able to practice at the same time, because I have to be doing two things at all times. And that's just my particular makeup. So you, you, and what I do is I turn the move into a subconscious habit. That's a key element. As I figure out what I want to do, I analyze it and I'll sit there and practice it in super slow motion, super slow motion till every exacting element of the muscle memory is full, firmly embedded in my brain. And then I sit there, mm -hmm. then I just start practicing when I'm talking, I'm walking, I'm doing other things that I'm not even aware that I'm practicing that move. It might be three years, three months, three days, three years, three centuries, but you'll look, look down and I go, by golly, I think I've got it. You know, and it, it, it may have been who knows how many thousands of hours doing it, not even aware that I'm doing it. You're, you're a touch consultant for the USPCC. How did that gig come about? And do you still do that work for them? Oh, yes. I, 
USBC is the best. They make the best cards in the world. It first started in 1988 uh, when I received uh, at that time at that time three gross of cards, and they were so bad. I I, I said the I called them up. I said these are not the cards you've been making for a hundred years. I said I can prove to you that you are subcontracting your paper out. You're doing something because these cards aren't good for even seven minutes. And I know people in the, end of the casino industry, and if you don't do something about it, I'm going to let them know that their their, their card bill is going to be going up because they're going to be wearing out cards a lot faster. And I said, I, I, this is how bad I was. I said, you're not the expert on your product. I am. And, uh, and so they sent a representative <laughs> out, showed them all these things, and they went back and they said, well, you've been proven right. And then in 1993, fast forward five five years, uh, I got a gross of cards and they were cut wrong. The blade went to the back of the card instead of the face of the card, which made a non-user friendly deck. And I called them up, I said, these are not traditionally cut cards. And it took about a year for us to analyze what part of their process changed. And then what happened was they turned the, the sheets over so they could read the code on the ace of spades and in case there was any leaking or running of the ink on the cards they would be able to spot it before they went and punched them punched them is when they punch them into uh, uh 52 uh, 56 into individual cards and uh, so i i and then after that they said he's been proven right every time put him on retainer instead of getting mad at me they put me on retainer now real quick backstory back in the 70s they would not let me have cards because they i could not buy cards i had to go through a secondary source and uh, the places i performed for and they would have they would buy a, a, the gross for me because if i tried to order by the gross they said, we don't want people to know what you can do because people are not going to go to the casinos if they see you. And so they wouldn't sell me cards in the 70s. And uh, but in the 90s, they said, put them on retainer. And so I've been uh, analyzing them for a couple of decades and they're they're, they're They do want the high, highest quality card in the world. And uh, and they and they do make that. And, uh, and I'm sure you've tried to see this on the, probably tried the gold seal bicycles. I'm holding up a box of them right now. They're in my hands. <laughs> and the, the thing about those, uh, sadly, is they won't be able to be produced again because the press and laminator they were made on was destroyed when they built a new press and laminator and uh, moved to Kentucky. Um, so hang on to those cards while you can. But uh, the first few, first year or so with that new press and stuff, like the laminator alone, it's like 14 machines hooked together as one complete one complete unit, and uh, and it took a while to calibrate everything. And there are things that people don't even realize. Like, do you know there's a moisture level to a card? At that time, they were running the moisture level at 5.2 percent moisture level, too high. It makes a cakey card. You you do this, and the card needs Viagra. It's but you know, when you've done that, it, it sags. <laughs> You know, you want a, a card that has snap and that will keep that snap and hold its position. And uh, and so I think a 4.5% moisture level is just about right. If it goes too too much uh, uh, lower, then it uh, it's almost too brittle. But uh, anyway, but there's just things people don't even realize about a card. Okay. And I always say that a, pack, a deck of cards is the most sophisticated piece of paper in the world. 
You can't count money because money is not made out of paper. It's like uh, 80% cotton and 20% linen, some combination like that. It's not made out of paper. Cards, you took a business card. You look at cardboard boxes, P card print paper that you print stuff on, different qualities of paper that you just print stuff on. But a pack of cards has to meet a certain specification. And the reason is billions and billions and billions of dollars are exchanged based on a card. Casinos, gambling, card play, bridge, hold'em, blackjack, you name it, fish, go fish, <laughs> old maid. <Sure. laughs> there's, you know, so there's <laughs> lots of money. You want to play some old maid? I'll whip you an old maid. <laughs> anyway, so that's why I say it's the most sophisticated piece of paper made. People have no idea how sophisticated it is. Absolutely, absolutely. How did the, the gold standard cards come to be because you recently found a stash of your own ones that are available on that there vanishingincmagic.com but what was the story of their origin how did they come to be well i i made enough gold seal b cards to last me the rest of my life because you know u.s playing card company they wanted to pay me uh to you to analyze their cards i said i'll take payment in cards so if if I took this little computer and to open that door to my right, you'd see yes. like six thousand decks just in this my my to go closet, and then in other places I have you know, many more. Uh, so I made enough bees to last me the rest of my life, and then the director of R and D, he said, uh, you know, we're getting ready to move, and then I, all my magician friends said, will you make some bicycles with the rider back, with the same quality as your bees. And I said, sure. So they run on B stock, which was their premium stock, the B stock. They started making Bs in 1892. That's what the 92 stands for on the box. Bicycles around 1885. And um, so uh, we ran them on B stock, which was the casino grade uh, paper. And uh, mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, as you saw, we uh, and and I was actually touring with Todd Robbins from New York, magi magician, mm -hmm. Banachek and Bob Arnold, pickpocket from uh, from uh, Sweden, and Banachek, a uh, mentalist from South Africa, and we were we were an ensemble of four that we co-starred in a show called Cond, and um, they were with me as we were traveling through New York and the places as I would have boxes of cards sent to me to analyze each one to to as I was we were going yes that is a good caliper in thickness you know like a card is like between like 11 thousandths to 11.5 thousandths of an inch and um and you don't want it too thin you don't want it too thick there's a, just a number of things and you don't want the embossing too deeply put in the card because it breaks down the structural integrity of the card you want a certain moisture level so it's not too soggy uh, um, and of course, you always want them traditionally cut where the blade goes through the face because the rounded old edges on the face of the card. And every type of shuffle you do, you start at the bottom and you go up. And that way, you're you're user friendly uh, with the with the shuffler. Uh, and even the most amateur shuffles, they still start from the bottom and and riffle up. And so those are the 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 key things that you want. So anyway, I and then also people always complained about the guarantee card on the joker. So I had matching pretty jokers and a cut card uh, and then a back card back. I, I, I had them make that on the, the a blank on one side for a cut card when you play for hold, play hold them. 
at the same time a magician can use it for a reverse fan or something the deck looks blank sure. or uh, other things and, the, and then just a back on the other side so uh you know i made a i me and my partner john walton we made a whole bunch of decks and um they're all uh um climate controlled and uh um, anyway so uh josh uh asked if he could uh, buy some and i said I love Josh J. Josh is one of the one of the most amazing magicians out there. A great guy, a wonderful man, and uh, he'll, I'm sure he'll tell you the story when we first met. One of the first times we met, he asked me to come over to my house, and he was asked. I asked. I said, "Show me a bottom deal," and, I, and then I'm sitting there feeling his hands. He's going, "How am I going to a bottom with this guy feeling my hands?" And, and then I was telling, "Okay, move those fingers here, move that here," and he started adjusting his grip and. He started getting, that was like 20 years ago or so. And uh, anyway, we've been friends ever ever since. And he's such a good writer. His book, my yes. wife, my wife, who's the city manager of the city we live in. She's the CEO of the city. She runs the city. The mayor is a, for the most part, a figurehead. He, he can only break ties. My wife runs the city. And she actually had his book given to all the police department, the police departments, the fire departments, and put into the Universal City Library. Ah, because she, that's how much she enjoyed it. Richard, we are out of time, but we always end the show with four quick fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? Oh dear, hold, let me hold, get, grab hold of my chair, got my deck firmly in, in my hands, not too, not too tight. Okay, here we go. Number one. Favorite pizza topping? Spinach. Cheese. No, I changed it, cheese. Every cheese under the sun. Favorite movie? Oh, God. Uh, gosh, favorite movie. Yeah, well, I always liked Godfather. I liked Jaws. Um, we, can, we can stick with, with Godfather and Jaws. That's fine. Favorite person or people that make music? Music. Uh, Paul McCartney or John Lennon. And finally, and I've never asked a martial artist this question, who would you rather fight one massive Joshua or a hundred tiny Andes? I'll, I'll take the giant Joshua. Because <laughs> I've taken down some big people in my life. <laughs> so as soon as they lift their leg up, I spin around, I take out their back leg and I'm on top of them. I've taken them down. Game over, Josh. Turner's going to take you down. Richard Turner, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been an absolute honor and a pleasure and i'm thank you very much indeed it was my pleasure to be with you damien and goodbye all my friends out there